The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 21. Heaven is our subject once again this morning. It's amazingly hard to get people to think very much about heaven. It's a strange thing for us that as Christians, and really just people just anywhere, that they wouldn't want to think about uh, what a great place that heaven is and the joys that the Lord has prepared for those who know him. And I think maybe some of the reasons that we don't think about heaven, first of all, is because we think that we're doing pretty well. We live in an affluent city. We have nice cars and nice houses. Uh, if we should have some troubling issues, they're not really all that bad. And, and thinking about heaven, that's not much help to us. Heaven's not going to happen today, or at least we don't think that it will. A distant heaven is not any help with my immediate financial needs. Uh, a distant heaven is not going to give me a better job. It's not going to make my education any better. It's not going to make my wife stop nagging me. Heaven, we think, it's just not very useful for us. It's distracting. And so why do we need to think about heaven when there are other things that maybe we think are more important to think about? The second reason that I think we don't think very much about it is because it forces us to focus on, on moral conclusions. It focuses us to, to think that we have someone that we have to answer to. I mean, surely if you believe that there is a heaven and you believe there is a God, then you believe there's this God that we have to answer to. There's a higher power that we have, are responsible to. And we don't really want to think about that responsibility for, for our moral actions. I think there might be another reason that we don't think very much about heaven. We don't really understand it. Uh, it seems to be far beyond our comprehension. And we don't know of anyone who has any credible evidence that they've actually seen it. Now, some try to solve that problem by saying that they believe that there is a heaven, and they try to prove there is a heaven by telling you that they've seen it. And they'll talk about things that they think take place in heaven. They say, I've been there, I've seen that, you've seen the books about it, that people claim that they have seen heaven. And the result of that is a bad foundation about what heaven really is. Now, this part is true. We don't have any reliable information from anyone today who has seen heaven. But we do have reliable information from someone who has seen heaven. And that happened about 2,000 years ago. And we read about it here in Revelation chapter 21. And this is the only account that we have about the reality of, of, of seeing heaven itself and what heaven is about. We find it here in these two chapters. Now, if you believe in an almighty, transcendent God and you believe there is a heaven, isn't it reasonable to believe that God would give us a reliable record of what heaven is? If heaven is the place that God has prepared for his people and he says that we're going to go there, we're going to be there forever, we're going to worship God in heaven forever, isn't it reasonable to believe that God could give us information about what heaven is like and what we're going to do when we get there and how that we're going to be able to get there? And that's exactly what God has given us when he gave us the Holy Scriptures, when he gave us his word. We cannot discount what the Bible has to say about this issue. And we can discount everything else that people say about it, but we cannot say that the Bible isn't true because the Bible has proved itself to be of supernatural origin. The remarkable consistency of the writings of Scripture accumulated over 1,500 years by a variety of authors over time and distance prove the Bible's authenticity. The faithful transmission for over 3,500 years of the manuscripts of Scripture that are almost identical is proof that the Bible has a supernatural origin. The predictions that we find in the Bible of prophecies that have happened over these thousands of years at exactly the right time proves that there is a superintending power over the Scriptures. Now, confidence in the Bible soars when we consider these things because there is no other book of religion that has facts like this that will back it up. There is no other book that we can say has a divine origin. 
And that means when I open the Bible and I read these two chapters of Revelation 21 and 22, I have full confidence that what this says is true. That God is telling us the truth here. That what John saw, he actually did see. So I don't have any doubt that these are myths and legends. These aren't pretend things. The scriptures are time-tested. The truth is tested. No one has ever been able to fault any statement that comes from the Bible, whether it refers to history or science or geography and, of course, to religion. Now, the Scriptures prove themselves that it's as fantastic as these things are that we've studied in Revelation 21. As fantastic as they are, this is the absolute truth that came from God. These are things that are beyond your imagination, but what is beyond your imagination is not too hard for God. You can't match wits with Him. If you could, you would be God, not Him. Now, many people think that they're capable of reasoning with God. And when they reach an impasse that's too great for them to understand, they just ignore it or they say that it's not true. That's human nature for us. And even sometimes that's true of Christians. When they hear doctrines that are too difficult, doctrines that stretch the understanding too much, then they just shut those things off. The sovereignty of God is a doctrine like that. When people can't reason it out, they can't fit things together, then they say, well, that, that just must not be true. But this is the truth of the Word of God. And the things that John describes in these chapters are mind stretchers, they are fantastic, and they are factual. Now, this much... I can tell you for sure about heaven. I mean, these things I can tell you for sure. But as I look at this, and I read what John said, this is the lower limit of what heaven is. I know this to be true, that heaven is more, much more than what we read here. What John is doing is just writing for human understanding. This is the, the best that we can do in understanding. So this is the very lowest limit of what heaven is. It's going to be far, far greater than what we read here. Romans 11.33, Paul wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Now, there are many facets of heaven that we don't understand because they relate to a world that is beyond human experience. And so what makes you think that a crazy book about near-death experiences can overshadow or overtake the Bible in its truth. I mean, if God cannot make you believe that there is a heaven by giving you a, a, an inspired, divinely inspired Holy Spirit book, if He can't get you to believe in heaven with that, how in the world are you going to be convinced by a cheap paperback that's published by somebody after a, a, a late-night pizza dream? Now, here we have the Word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired this. It's His Word. Now today I want to continue this discussion of the New Jerusalem. God prepared a city to be the home of the church. It's a city that's larger than any on the earth. It has more expensive neighborhoods. It has more expensive, expansive public works. It has more elaborate walls and gates and streets than you could ever imagine. It was built by God. And everything in it reveals the greatness of God. God never does anything halfway. He always goes above and beyond what we think he can do. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 3, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Everything in heaven is perfect because God is perfect. And really, folks, this, this is something that ought to give you cold chills when you think about it. The chapter is just mind-boggling, and yet most people look at this and they yawn, and they just pass on with no interest at all. I am intensely interested in what John says here. There are features of this city that reveal God's character. They tell us who God is, and in the process, they tell us what God expects from us. Now, these verses show us that there's, there's something wrong with the way that things are now. Now, knowing God personally and having heaven opened up in these scriptures shows us what things should be. 
This earth was once a garden paradise. Once it was just like verse number 4 says, no tears, no death, no sorrow, no pain, and no crying. That's how it should be. That's the way that it should have stayed. But it's no longer that way. And it's our fault that it's not that way. It's man that sinned. And what we continually do is to defy God. We continually eat forbidden fruit in defiance of God. And you have to ask, where are our honest attempts to make things right? You would think that church would be a place of refuge from all the nastiness of the world, and yet there are pastors that spend a lot of their time being referees between feuding church members. There are some people who want to tear down the church of the living God brick by brick by brick by brick. They want to destroy the doctrines of the church so that we have churches today that no longer stand on the truth of God's Word. Now, since the fall of Adam, we've never really tried to correct the mistake. We don't want things to be back the way that they were, and that's why heaven is off-topic for most people. We're promised that we will see God in heaven, but most people really don't care about seeing God. Now, let me meddle for just a minute. This is what I think is wrong with politics. This is why we have two polecats that are running for president. And for those of you that don't know what a polecat is, that's a, that's a skunk. And so if you have to hold your nose when you go into the voting booth this November, it's because there are skunks, polecats that are on the ballot. And if you decide that you're going to vote in this election, my advice for you is when you get done, go home and take a shower afterwards. On one side, we have an immoral narcissist. And then on the other side, we have a representative of a party that long ago abandoned every decency that people should live by and just flushed morality down the toilet. And so our selection this year is like punching a ticket for hell no matter which way you vote. This is why I think that we need heaven. This is why I want to think about heaven because I can rest from all the brainless, godless nonsense that the world is perpetrating through Satan's slithering serpents. I need something that makes sense, and nothing is better than heaven. Everything that we read in here is about the way things should be. So yes, reading about heaven is the way things ought to be. To see God in His glory, that is the focus. This is not about you and me. This is about the Almighty God. Now, thinking of the way things ought to be makes me want to take a tour of heaven. And that's what we're doing right here. The Apostle John has a tour guide who is an angel that's showing him all these different things that are in heaven. Now, we've discussed that angel. We've discussed the description of the appearance of the city. It sparkles like a diamond. It refracts the light of the glory of God into a dazzling prism of beautiful colors. And today I want to move on to talk about the size of the city. This is our fourth point in our outline. It comes after angels, the appearance, and the architect. And so fourthly, what I want to talk about first in the message today is the amplitude of the city. The amplitude means the magnitude of it. Now, I've used an A word to keep up with our alliteration. Amplitude simply means the magnitude of it. There is just so much space. There are large amounts of space in the 15th and 16th verses the, the angel measured the city. It's a cube that is 1,500 miles on each side. The surface area of one side would cover about two-thirds of the continental United States. It rises into the sky to a height of 1,500 miles. If this city was set down on the top of Europe, it would cover England and Ireland, Scotland, France, Germany, Spain, Austria, the Baltics, Turkey, and half of European Russia. No Bible city is like this city. None of the past is like this. Now, Nineveh in the time of Jonah, that was a huge city. It took three days to cross Nineveh on foot. Babylon was a huge city, 14 miles on each side. But that does not compare to the new Jerusalem in heaven. L.A., the L.A. metro area, you start up, you know, in the north on the outskirts around Santa Clarita. You go south down along 405 or 5 to Costa Mesa. That's a, that's a distance of about 75 miles. From the west at Santa Monica, clear over to the east to San Bernardino is about 75 miles. 
And so the footprint of the L.A. area, and this is not all of it, not including all of it, the footprint of the L.A. area is about 6,000 square miles. But when we're talking about heaven, the New Jerusalem is an astounding 2.2 million square miles. And the city could very well be multi-storied. And if there's a mile between each story in the city, there would be 3.3 billion square miles of surface area. That's huge. And this is the place that Jesus called my father's house. Do you think that the disciples would have thought when Jesus told him that, that he was talking about something this large? A city that has 3.4 billion cubic feet of space? You know, I read in the paper a few weeks ago about a guy who's uh, paying $400 to live in an eight-foot box in a friend's apartment in San Francisco. Now, I think that article should have started out, friends don't let friends live in boxes, but this fellow was living in a box in the other guy's living room. And what do you think the guy in the box is thinking about? Does he ever think about heaven? If I lived in an eight-foot box, I'd be thinking of heaven every day and all the space that there is. And when Jesus talked about his father's house, it was a house bigger than the disciples thought the entire world was at their time. So there's room. There's lots of room there. Why does there need to be so much room? Because there's going to be a whole lot of people there. This is what J.A. Seiss wrote. He said, God did not create the earth in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Much rather then, would he not lavish all his glory and splendor upon the eternal city without knowing that enough out of the family of man would embrace his salvation to fill and people it? And the population to fill and occupy a city of 1,500 miles long and broad and high, allowing for the amplest room and space for each individual, family, tribe, tongue, and nation would necessarily mount up to myriads on myriads who sing the songs and taste the joys of redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Henry Morris did some unusual calculations about how many people have been saved since the beginning of time. And then he calculated the numbers of children that died in infancy. And then he took the space for the dwellings that was needed, space for the streets. And in his calculations, he said that each person would have about 30 cubic miles of personal space. I don't know how he figured all of that. But if he's right, and if it's your dream that you might someday live in a house that's 5,000 square feet or 7,000 square feet, then what, what would you think? How can you possibly imagine what it would be like to have 25 billion square feet on the first floor of your house? That's, a ro that's room for a lot of eight-foot boxes. <laughs> Morris also calculated that there would be about 20 billion people in heaven. Now, I don't know how many people have heard the gospel since, uh, since the beginning. I do know that there are about 45 million aborted babies that are added to the population of heaven every year. Nearly 125,000 babies enter heaven every day, or about 85 every minute. There are questions about what happens to these babies. Where in heaven do they go? Does heaven have a place for orphans? Are they still babies when they get there? I don't know the answers to those questions. I do know this, the Bible teaches that a body that goes into the ground is not the same body that comes out of the ground at the resurrection. I don't know what that body looks like. It doesn't really matter what it looks like. The most important thing is that all of these souls are going to be in heaven. The most important thing to realize is that all these babies have souls. That they are alive in their mother's body. And they all mean something to God. Politicians think they have the right, people have the right to kill the baby in the womb. And they say, well, if the baby's inconvenient, if it doesn't fit into your plans, then kill it. That's okay. That's fine. And so kill it and, and harvest the organs. Abortionists crush the brains and pull their bodies apart. But God doesn't stand for that. What God does is he redeems them and he puts them back together. Meaningless protoplasm is what Planned Parenthood calls it. When really it's not Planned Parenthood at all, it's premeditated murder is what it is. Now think very carefully about this when you go to the polls. Vote for murderers because they have a plan for the economy? 
and vote for murderers because they promise you universal health care. So when you go to the polls and you leave the poll, take that sticker and put it proudly on your chest. I voted. I voted for murderers. Be proud about that. Now what we ought to do, we wonder how many people are going to be in heaven. I don't know, but I know this, that, that everyone that's old enough to understand and who hasn't trusted Christ as their Savior will not be there, that hell enlarges its borders to receive those who do not believe. And I know that many believers are complicit in this because we do not tell other people about Jesus Christ. And you say, wait, wait just a minute. Um, God is sovereign. God saves whomever He will. It doesn't matter if I tell them about Christ. If they're the elect of God, they're going to go to heaven anyway. Don't ever make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. God is sovereign. Nobody's going to be in heaven that God doesn't know about, that He hasn't chosen. But don't make this mistake. God's method of saving them is the gospel of Christ. And they must hear that gospel. They must hear about Jesus and the apostle who taught us about election and predestination and effectual calling said, I am pure from the blood of all men. And why did Paul write that? He could only write it because he had not failed to declare the whole counsel of the Word of God to people who needed to hear it. That's the only way he could be pure from the blood of all men. Be very careful how you pit God's sovereignty against man's responsibility. Heaven is populated by believers, but there is none of them that will be there who has not heard the gospel of Christ. Heaven is populated because somebody did what they were told to do, and that is to tell others about who Jesus is. Now, babies can't believe. Aborted fetuses can't believe. If they die naturally or if they're murdered, then God graciously regenerates them and takes them to heaven. And we thank God for that marvelous work. Why? His mercy endures forever, doesn't it? He takes those little babies to heaven. What do I say? I say, curse the unmerciful who take their lives. Curse the selfish who take their lives. Curse those who say that they have the right to murder. Curse the ones that vote for it. Curse them. And then ask God for His mercy to save them. Because they will not escape their crimes without God's mercy. Now, abortion is a sin. And if you've been involved in that, I don't know if anybody in here has been, I do know this, that God redeems people from all sin, from the worst of sins. God can save anybody from sin. You know, all of us are sinners. All of us are condemned to hell. And it takes the mercy and the grace of God to save us. And He will save us if we confess of our sins and repent and trust Christ. But in the meantime, what Christians need to do is to stand against the murder of the innocents. And so if your candidate is okay with abortion, no matter who he or she is, whether it's Ahab or Jezebel... Doesn't matter. You know, I think it's more righteous to be a good citizen of God's kingdom than it is to be a patriotic American. And you might not agree with that, but I think that I owe more allegiance to God than I do to America. So how many people are going to be in heaven? Charles Spurgeon, the most prolific preacher in history, said that the greatest part of mankind will be saved. Others think that the greatest part of mankind will be lost. Only God knows. I just know this, that there will be room for all who believe, no matter how many there are. Now think about this for just a minute. Why would God build a city that would be overpopulated? Why would he build one that when he got finished with it, he said, you know, there's not enough space. I need some extra space. Why would he do that? Well, he knows how many are going to be there. He has all of their names written down before the foundation of the world. According to verse number 27 in this chapter, they're written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you think that it might not be strange to believe that an omniscient God had to wait and see what happens before he filled out his book? And yet, as surely as I'm standing here today, there are some Baptist preachers who say that God writes the names down when people believe. That would be the same as saying 
God's saying, I better wait to see how big the city needs to be before I actually build it. Well, check out Revelation 17, 8 to see when God wrote down the names. Is there room in heaven? Well, heaven's not Japan. In Japan, the average person lives in 200 square feet of space. Heaven is not an African hut. And heaven is not an American studio apartment. And heaven is surely not an eight-foot box. In the Father's house, there's plenty of room. It's a city of great magnitude. So think about that first. The amplitude, the magnitude of the city of heaven. So much room. And God has prepared that for those who are the members of His churches. The faithful members of the Lord's church are the ones that are going to inhabit the new Jerusalem. Well, now this brings me to the next point, And I think it's a very important one. Theology is it's great. God does things for reasons. Nothing that God does is random. And this is why we pay attention to details. Now, now, fifthly, let me talk to you about the apostles of the city. Verse number 14 says, 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, before I discuss that verse, let, let me just add an important point from verse number 12. We talked about verse 12, that there are 12 gates to the city, and written on the gates are the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, each of those tribes has a name. It's the name of a man that was one of the sons of Jacob. Verse 12 says, And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates. These are the pearly gates. At the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now I take that to mean that there are three names of tribes on each of these gates, and you have four gates, so that adds up to twelve names. Now in the Old Testament, when Israel encamped around the tabernacle, which was at the center of the camp, there were three tribes that camped on each side of the tabernacle, north, south, east, and west. And so I think that that corresponds to what we see in the New Jerusalem. There are four, there are four gates to the city. On each gate, there are three names of a tribe, three names of tribes that are in Israel. Well, what does that mean to us? Why are those names there? Well, four gates, that means 12 names. Israel is represented. Why? Because Israel is where we got the man, Jesus. Israel gave us the king, the successor to the greatest king, who is David, and Jesus has become the greatest king of Israel of all time. He is the last king of Israel, and nobody gets into heaven without going through Israel. So going through those gates is representative of this, that we go through Israel because Jesus came from Israel. Now remember that when you go to vote two. Remember that. God is not through with Israel. In fact, God's never going to be done with Israel. How do I know? Because here are their names written in the gates of heaven for eternity. So I'll tell you this, when you go to vote, make sure you vote for somebody who says, we're going to support Israel. We don't want to find ourselves on the opposite side of Israel. Now let's back up to verse 14 again, and, and, I, and I want to return for a minute to our discussion about the walls. In verses 18 through 20, we learn that the foundations of the walls have 12 beautiful, colorful gemstones, and they add to the luster of this wall that frames the border of the city. Now, our previous discussion two weeks ago was about the foundations and how important it is to have a firm foundation. Now, let me return to that thought because I want to expand on what it says in verse number 14. There are 12 names of 12 men that are inscribed in 12 layers of the foundation. Now, those names don't have anything to do with the architecture of it, but they have everything to do with who lives in the city. Now, we mark this down once again and make this note that the New Jerusalem is the city of the church, and the city is populated because of the work that the church does. The gospel has been committed to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is no one else who has the authority to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, it started with Jesus and 12 men that he chose to be apostles. He gave them 
the commission to preach the gospel, and then Jesus set them up in the church as the foundation. Now, what did Jesus tell them? He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He said, follow me, and we'll cast our net out there, and we'll bring men in that net into the kingdom of God. Now, heaven is populated because of the gospel. That's the message of the Christ, uh, the cross, that Jesus lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross, and he died for our sins. He was buried, and then he arose again for our justification. The apostles were the first preachers of that gospel. I've got two points that I want to make about this, and we'll be done today, and I hope this will help you. The first is that these apostles were foundational for the church. Their names are written in the foundation walls as a symbol that they are the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2, we read, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the church was built on these men. It was built on their untiring efforts. Jesus called them at a time when preaching the gospel was extremely difficult. People were killed. They were killed for preaching this commission that Christ gave them. The work wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. They saw what happened to Jesus, and they were terribly frightened about what would happen to them. They saw him die, and they thought, there's no hope. It's all over with. If he dies, that's the end of it. And so what did they do? They returned to their fishing, not fishing for men any longer, but fishing for fish. And remember how that Jesus came to them when they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and he was standing on the shore, and he called them back to him, and they saw that he was alive, and then their fear left. They weren't afraid of death anymore. And right there in that conversation, Jesus told Peter that he would be crucified. And then all the rest of the apostles would die, and all of them died martyr deaths except John. None of them gave up on Christ. Now one of them, you remember, had a devil. He was gone by the time that Jesus arose. Jesus knew what he would do. And he was there to fulfill prophecy. And by, by the way, going back to my opening comments about prophecy, the prophecy about Judas was put into the Scriptures 1,000 years before Judas did what he did. Now when Christ arose, much of the disciples' confusion about what he taught was cleared up. Now they began to understand very important points of his teachings that eluded them at first. At first, his death was mystifying. They misinterpreted things like Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus said to them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus meant that he had a very important role for them in his millennial kingdom. They were going to sit on thrones of judgment. They misinterpreted that, and they thought, That's coming soon. It's not going to be very long until he sets up his kingdom, then we'll sit on these thrones judging all of Israel. They didn't know that they were going to have to die. But now it becomes clear to them that Jesus has a special plan for them in his church. They would play a huge part in this new enterprise of the church, and they would be the foundation of this great movement that would preach the gospel to all people. And Jesus memorialized their faithfulness for all time by writing their names in the foundation of the city that belongs to God and to his church. Now let me make this important point about them. Their teachings were foundational. We do not go beyond what the apostles taught. They received their doctrine from Christ and from the Holy Spirit, and these twelve men were the beginning and there were three more that were added to them. That was Paul and James and Jude, who were half-brothers of Jesus. And then the Scriptures were complete. At the end of the first century, it was done. God said all that he wanted to say, and so he shut down his revelation. Everything that he intended for us to know is in the 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments. God has not given us any other 
revelation. And we're warned not to add anything to what God said or take away anything from what God said. If you want to turn over to the 22nd chapter, it might be on the screen. I'm not sure, the 18th verse. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book of prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And so the book that you bought about heaven and the movie that you watched about heaven, throw it away. It belongs in the trash. When somebody hands you a book of Mormon, throw it away. It belongs in the trash. When a Jehovah Witness comes to your door and hands you the watchtower, throw that away. It belongs in the trash. Now, I'll tell you my practice with these people is when they come and hand me their literature, I don't say, no, I don't want it. I say, no, give it to me. And then I say, thank you, because I'm going to throw it in the trash now so somebody else won't get it. Throw it in the trash. And when someone comes to you and says that God has spoken to them, that God has given them a vision File it away in the lunacy bin. Everything that we need to know about God is in the Holy Scriptures. And if you want to know something about God that's not in the Bible, you don't need to know it. He gave us everything that we need to know. Now the names of these men are in the foundations of the New Jerusalem because they are the foundation of the church. And what does the Word of God say about the church? It is the pillar and ground of the truth. Nothing comes to us except what's written in the Word of God as delivered to us by the prophets and the apostles in God's Word. Now lastly, let me finish with just a little bit of controversy. And I hope this will give you just a little bit of pause to think. And that's the controversy over the names. There are 12 names and there are 12 stones. What are the names? Well, that seems simple enough. The apostles were chosen in Matthew 10. Twelve names are given. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simeon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So there are twelve names. Well, there's an issue that confronts us here. That's the last name. It's the last name that appears in every listing of the apostles in the Scripture. The last name is always Judas Iscariot. Now, it's interesting that the names of the apostles form concentric circles around Jesus. There's the tight inner circle. That's Peter, James, and John. A little bit further out, there are three more, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas. And then you go beyond that, there's another circle until finally it spins out to the furthest away, like Pluto in its orbit, and that's Judas Iscariot. He had no relationship with Jesus. Jesus referred to him in the betrayal in the garden as friend, but the word that Jesus used for friend is not the word that's used for an intimate friend. There was no intimacy with Judas. He was never a believer. He was chosen for a special purpose of betrayal. So he was a plotter, he was a schemer, he was a thief. He was a liar from the beginning. Jesus knew it, and he stayed that way. He was the son of perdition. That means the son of destruction. Jesus never prayed for Judas. Did you know that? You might want to file that away in some of your information, wherever you keep it, that Jesus never prayed for Judas. This is what he said in his prayer, his intercessory prayer of John 17. When I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept. None of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. You notice that Jesus said that before he was betrayed. He never prayed for Judas. One of them is going to be lost, he said. That's the son of perdition. Now, he prayed for the Father to keep the others, not to keep Judas. He was lost and he went to hell. He betrayed the Lord and then he hung himself. Well, that leaves 11 names. 11 names. Judas, the traitor, does not have his name in the walls 
in the foundations of the New Jerusalem. So who is that 12th apostle? Well, I think most of you have an idea. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles proposed the names of two men that would take the place of Judas. And so they had a vote to see which one of these would be appointed to the office. In Acts chapter 1, verse 23, And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, thou Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whither of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All's well and good, isn't it? Looks fine, but not according to some. The disciples chose a qualified candidate. He brought the compliment back to the number 12. And why do we need the number 12? It's because of the symmetry. Remember when we talked about that? There's the symmetry of this thing. There has to be 12. There has to be 12 to rule 12 tribes. There has to be 12 and 12 foundations. There must be 12 churchmen that balance out 12 men from the tribes of Israel that are in the throne room of God. Somehow the number has to get back to 12. Now the problem is, who has the right to decide who this 12th person is going to be? J. Vernon McGee said that Peter had no right to call for a vote. And he said the 120 men and women who were the first church there meeting, uh, the first church at Jerusalem meeting, had no right to vote on Matthias to be the one to replace Judas. And to prove the validity of his reasoning, he said, Matthias was never heard from again. But his reasoning fails because of other names in the list that we never heard from again. Nobody ever heard of James of Alphaeus again. Nobody ever heard of Simon the Canaanite again. So that's not any proof for us. But there, there's a problem here. Um, you look at Acts 6, verse 2. You have the 11 with the addition of Matthias. And now they're known once again as the twelve. So what is that problem? Well, the problem is there's another apostle who is chosen by Christ at a different time. The problem is that this apostle had a special calling from Christ and had very special notoriety that trumps that of Matthias. The problem is that this man that Christ chose gave us more doctrine than anyone. And the problem is the man wrote more of the New Testament than anyone. And the problem is that this man was the greatest missionary of all time. And the problem is that in the book of Acts, which is the history of the church in the first century, this man is the most prominent in the book. Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's actually the Acts of only two apostles. That's Peter and this man. And then after chapter 13 in the Acts, this man becomes the most prominent in that book. He dominates everything from chapter 13 on. Well, whose name then is going to be in the 12th foundation of the New Jerusalem? Now, we know who that 12th person or that, that other man chosen is, don't we? That's the Apostle Paul. So whose name is going to be in the foundation wall? Is it Matthias or is it Paul? My answer is Matthias. Let me give you the reasoning. Look at Acts chapter 1. And we see the qualifications for the one who's chosen. These are specific. They make sense. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of the resurrection. Now, to be counted with the twelve, the apostle had to have been with Christ in his personal ministry. Paul was not. Paul became a Christian about two years after Christ died. If he had met Christ before, he would have been a hater. He would have been a persecutor. He would have tried to kill Jesus. Secondly, he had to have the baptism of John. And I take that to mean, as many others do, that all 12 of the apostles had John's baptism. You say, why? Well, because John baptized Jesus, and it was John's responsibility to give us or make up the a material for the first church. They all had to have John's baptism. Well, Paul was not baptized by John the Baptist. I don't believe that John the Baptist's baptism could be transmitted to anyone else. It was a special baptism that's given by God. So Paul was baptized by Ananias, 
And Ananias must have received his authority from the apostles of the church at Jerusalem who were given the commission to preach the gospel and to baptize. So Paul was not baptized by John the Baptist. Now thirdly, this apostle has to be a witness of the resurrection. And I take that to mean that he had to be a witness immediately of the resurrection and before Christ ascended, that way he would be able to say, I knew Christ, I knew that he died, I saw that he died, and I saw that he is alive, a witness of the resurrection. Well, Paul also, of course, was a witness of the resurrection, but he saw Jesus two years after the fact, when he was on the road to Damascus. The apostle Paul referred to himself in 1 Corinthians as an apostle that was born out of due time. And he meant that as a statement of inferiority to the other apostles only in this, and that he was a persecutor of Christians beforehand. While they were in their ministry that Christ had given them, he was killing Christians. And so he called himself the least of the apostles for that reason. Now apparently, Justice and Matthias met all of the conditions, and of those two, Matthias was chosen. Now think for just a minute about the disparity, because there's a lesson here. Paul is famous. Matthias is only relatively famous. He's famous, we're talking about him right now. But he's only famous because of one peculiar incident in the New Testament, two verses of Scripture in the same chapter that tell us about him. Whereas Paul has his name scattered throughout the rest of the New Testament in all those letters that he wrote and in the book of Acts. Paul was highly prominent. And so you have to ask, is Paul slighted here? Did that really matter to him? Who was the least likely of all to be a chess beater? Paul was unlike many church members. You mean I didn't get my name in the bulletin? And then you spelled it wrong when you did? Paul wasn't like that. Paul never asked anybody to clap for him at the preacher's conference. Nobody stood up for Paul. He didn't need that. He only needed one thing. This is what he said. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You know that many pastors serve with no notoriety. They labor in fields of obscurity. Nobody knows about them. They're only known to their congregation. That's it. They labor among a small group of people and they're never going to have their names engraved in a gemstone. But that doesn't matter, because God knows their names. And it doesn't matter for you, Christian. Just be faithful, be concerned about only one thing, and that is that God knows your name. That's the most important thing. He knows about you. He knows that you have kept serving Him faithfully for many, many years. He knows that when you reached retirement, that you didn't retire from His service but you kept at it. You stayed in church. You kept up with your job. You did what you did in order to lead people to Christ and to serve God in His church. God remembers your name. He remembers your faithfulness. It doesn't matter how much recognition you receive from this world. We all need this attitude. God forbid that I should glory. Heaven is a place where God gets all of the glory. I'm satisfied with that, and I hope that you are too. I'm satisfied that Christ receives all the glory. He knows my name. And that's the most important thing to me. So I'm telling you today, your names are not going to be, you're in church, but your names are not going to be in the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. Don't worry about that. Your names are not going to be in the gates of pearl, like the sons of Jacob. Don't worry about that. Your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you're going to live in heaven eternally if you know Jesus Christ. That's all that you need. And there you'll glorify Jesus forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have, that trusting you and being faithful to your church gives us that place in the new Jerusalem. Our names have been written down in your book. And Lord, at the right time, you bring us the gospel of Jesus Christ and you open our hearts to it and the Holy Spirit works in us to cause us to believe. We thank you for that mercy and grace that you've extended to us. Lord, I pray for someone here today who has not trusted you as Savior. 
that they would put all their confidence in you. Know that heaven is real. Know what Jesus did. Know that salvation is in Him. And all we need to do is trust Him, repent of our sins, have that faith in Him, and then we're going to be able to go to heaven. Lord, I pray for Christians here today that we would remember that heaven is only going to be populated by the work of the church. We've been given a responsibility to give the gospel to other people, to talk about our faith in Christ and for people to understand that message. They will not be saved without it. And so, Lord, help us to remember that, to be good witnesses for you. Bless us, Lord, today. We thank you for the great day that we've had singing and praying and preaching. We just thank you, Lord, for it all. Bless us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The easiest things that I could do right now is just say, how many of you think you're going to heaven? Raise your hand if you think you're going to heaven. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand. There may be somebody who can't raise their hand. And they would say, well, by virtue of the fact that I can't raise my hand, then pressure's been put on me. Pressure's on me now. I've got to think about this thing and... I've got to see if I'm going to heaven. Well, you know, I don't manipulate people in invitations. I'm glad for all of you that are able to raise your hand, and I didn't actually look to see who didn't. But there's somebody here today who said, I couldn't raise my hand, or you think that you're going to heaven for the wrong reasons, and that is you figured out, I'm just pretty good. If anybody's going to get to heaven, surely I will. If that's the way you think. You won't go to heaven. Because only those who realize that they're bankrupt, realize they have nothing to offer, no good in them whatsoever. Only those who have come to the realization that Christ saves in Him alone, I offer Him nothing but my brokenness, my sinfulness. I cannot be saved unless Christ did everything for me. Those are the people that are really going to heaven. Think about that. I won't ask you to raise your hand again to see if you're still sure. Think about that. No. That you go to heaven because of Jesus Christ, not because of you. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.